Good morning, everyone. I just wanted to share with you a brief report about yesterday. Several uh, members of IGC volunteered through Rebuilding Oakland Together, and uh, I was able to uh, uh, go with them just very briefly. Um, and I talked with uh, the lady who uh, everyone was helping. Her name is Marina Martinez. And she was just sharing how uh, grateful she is, you know, that all these people would descend on her home and help her. And, you know, her home really needed rehabilitation. And she just felt like it was like a miracle, she said. And I was just so encouraged to see people uh, uh, commit their time and their energy and to get dirty and to do some hazardous stuff, you know, and, and to really show that grace to uh our community, you know, to the poor in our, in our, in our neighborhood. Um, well, we're going to look at uh, Ephesians 5 today in our sermon text. If you guys can turn to page 4. Um, for those of you who are new and visiting, we are going through a marriage series. Um, Sammy, can you actually lower the volume just a slight bit? So we're going through a marriage series, and uh, we are well, well into it now. And actually, we're almost done. It's just going to be today and then next week, and then... And then and then we're done. Um, so let me read to you Ephesians 5. This comes from uh, Apostle Paul, starting in verse 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands. Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church." Because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is the word of God. All right. So we're talking about marriage and gender roles. And I want to be upfront right with you from the start and say that this is a, a, a topic that is you know, fraught with controversy. So that even within the church, there are major disagreements. And I want you to know that I have a definite uh, understanding on this, but I didn't come to this conclusion lightly but only because scripture has led me here, okay? So I want you to know that. And I want to begin by just sharing with you my own story. Um, some of you know that my mom is a professor. And I, uh, my earliest memories of her was uh, her pursuing her PhD all through my childhood. And she would go to the library. And, you know, I practically grew up in the library. She was studying at USC. So I vividly remember, you know, those brick uh, buildings at USC, and I just remember her, her always carrying books, huge stacks of books, and always just reading and studying. And do you know what she was pursuing her PhD in? Feminism, okay? <laughs> she wrote her dissertation on Marxist feminism. 
And I remember having uh, these conversations with her as a little child. And she would say to me, Michael, men and women are equal. I'll be like, "Uh uh-huh. And she would say, you know, there's nothing a man can do that a woman can't do. And I'll be like, "Uh uh-huh. And and I remember she would just rail against the idea that, you know, a woman's place is in the kitchen and only the man can go out there and have a career. And I remember thinking, even as a little kid, just how fundamentally unfair that was. And I was like, that's so unjust. And my mom's like, yes, you know. And I remember one of the things that she would say to me all the time is she would say, and you know, the Apostle Paul was a sexist, right? She would say to me, you know, Jesus is all right. Jesus is good. Listen to him. But The Apostle Paul on gender issues can't be trusted. And so I would read passages like Ephesians 5 and I would kind of cringe, you know? And I had this deep suspicion of what Christianity had to say on the role of women. And maybe that's where some of you are right now. Maybe some of you have been burned by the church on this. And in fact, I personally know someone who left the church for this reason. You know, she had um, some abusive male figures in the church in her life who really burned her. And so she no longer believes the gospel because of this. And so, you know, let's be really honest, okay? Let's really lay out all the cards on the table, okay? Is there a long and tragic history of men abusing women? Yes. Are there men who use the church and use the Bible as a justification to oppress women? Yes. And we need to be honest about that, and we need to repent of it, and we need to own up to it. But I want you to know something, that that is not what the Bible says. That is a terrible distortion and twisting of what the Bible says. And the reason is because of sin. Okay, and so here's a quick biblical theology of sin. Sin is not just doing evil things like rape and murder, but sin is spoiling and and abusing what was originally good. What was originally good, and that's, so it is with gender roles. Gender roles in the beginning was good and beautiful, but because of sin, because of the selfishness of men, it has become for many people something ugly and something terrible. And so we have a lot of work ahead of us, okay? We're going to try to uncover what the Bible says about gender roles, and we sort of have to peel away the layers of cultural corruption, okay? And so here are my three points, and this is the outline. Point number one, we're going to look at the problem of gender roles. Point number two, we're going to look at uh, biblical headship and submission in marriage. What does it actually look like? And then finally, we're going to see that gender roles is ultimately about gospel reenactment. All right, so point number one. Gender roles, the problem of gender roles. So going back to my story, I remember it was a huge problem for me because as I read the Bible, I couldn't escape the biblical language. Because here's what the Bible was saying, and for me, it made me very uncomfortable. I had a huge problem with it. And so let's look at what the Bible is saying. You know, what is, it, what is the Bible saying about gender roles? Look, starting in verse 22. Paul writes, "'Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord.'" Uh, Let me stop right there. Is Paul saying that all women need to submit to all men? Absolutely not. Okay, how do we know that? Paul inserts a little word that's actually a bit of a redundancy. He inserts that little word there to let you know what he's actually talking about. What's that little word? You guys can see it, right? It's the word 
own. Wives, submit to your own husbands, okay? And so gender roles is something that needs to be practiced within the protection and safety of marriage and the church, but it's not applicable to the world out there, okay? So I don't want you guys to be going to your workplace and going to your female boss and saying, your position is illegitimate. I I will smack you if you do that, okay? (laughs) If I hear you doing that. All right, so let's continue on. Okay, so verse 22, let me say it again. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Verse 23, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and is himself its savior. So first, what does it mean that the husband is the head of the wife? Now, it amazes me that people will interpret a headship to mean anything other than authority, you know? There are people out there that will say headship, head means source, or head means something else other than authority. But listen to me, it absolutely means authority. And you know why we, we know that, okay? Other than the fact that if you look at the actual Greek lexicon, head means authority, okay? So aside from the actual language definition, do you know how we know? All you got to do is read on in the verse, right? Paul says, The head of the wife is the husband, just as Christ is the head of the church. What is the relationship of Christ to the church? Is he not, does he not have authority over the church? See, I have a lot more respect for people if they treated the biblical language honestly, right? And don't try to get it to mean something, you know, it doesn't. You know, if you disagree, fine. Maybe scripture is wrong here. Okay, that's a position you can take. But don't try to make scripture say something it isn't saying. And so that's the first thing. The husband is the head of his wife. And I remember as a, as a young person reading that and just being really upset, you know, and just being really offended because I thought what that meant is that women are inferior to men. Right? If the husband is the head of his wife, that means women are inferior to their husbands. But here's what turned it around for me. You can't read Ephesians 5 in isolation. You need to read Ephesians 5 in light of everything that Paul has written on gender roles, okay? And the seminal verse to help us understand what Paul is talking about is another letter he wrote to the Corinthian church, 1 Corinthians 11.3, and I have it there printed in your bulletins. And so this is very, very important, foundational verse. Let me read to you. Listen carefully. Paul writes, but I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband. And the head of Christ is God. You see, what that is saying is that the head of Christ, and this is key, the head of Christ is God the Father. That Christ submits to the will of the Father. That within the Trinity... Each divine person has a role. And the role of the father is to be the head. And the role of the son, of the role of Christ, is to submit. Okay, but does that mean that Christ is inferior to the father? Absolutely not. Jesus says, the father and I are one. John chapter 1, 1, speaking of Christ In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus is God. Colossians 1.15, Jesus is the 
image of the invisible God, in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Hebrews 1.3, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. What are all these verses telling us? That Jesus is of equal worth and dignity and honor to the Father, and yet he submits to the headship of the Father. And yet he submits to the headship of the Father. And so what that means is if you say, I cannot accept a wife submitting to her husband because what that means is that the wife is inferior, fine. But then you don't believe in the Trinity. You don't believe that Jesus is equal to the Father. You see, you can't have it both ways because the Apostle Paul won't let you. He links these two teachings together, right? Colossians I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians 11.3, right? Just as the wife submits to the husband, so Christ submits to the father. Okay? And when I first heard that argument, I heard, first heard that argument when I was in high school, that's what turned it around for me because that's when I realized that my offense and my objections was based fundamentally on this premise, on this assumption that was not at all biblical. And what was that assumption? My assumption, and this is what our culture teaches us, my assumption is that your role defines your value. Okay, this is very important. This is what the world teaches us. Your role defines your value. So that if you are at the head of an organization, that means you're somebody, right? You're somebody significant. But if you have a lowly role in the organization, like let's say you're a custodian, that means you're nobody, right? That means you're insignificant. And so that's what the world is telling us. What you do defines who you are, and that's why nobody wants to be a servant. That's why we're fighting each other, and we're clawing at each other to climb to the top, to be the head. But what does the Bible teach us? A radical new paradigm. That the path to greatness is humility. That whoever will be first in the kingdom of God must be the servant of all. And so that explains the two extremes that we see. Right? You have traditional culture in which it says your role defines your value and it says therefore men are superior to women. And then you have modern culture which on the surface seems to react against traditional culture but it fundamentally accepts the premise that your role defines your value. And so modern culture says, because men and women are equal, gender roles are bad. We have to abolish all gender roles. Do you understand what I'm saying here? That traditional culture and modern culture, even though on the surface they look radically opposed, underneath they're fundamentally the exact same position. Your role defines your value. But what does uh, the Bible say? The Bible says no, and it proposes something radically different that the world really can't understand. The Bible says different roles equal value. Different roles equal worth. So that submission does not mean you're worthless, but it's actually the path to greatness. And headship does not mean that you have an excuse to exploit and oppress people underneath you, but it is a a serious responsibility to serve and love. And so that's the first point, the problem of gender roles, okay? That what you see in this world are two extremes, but both of them are articulating 
the idea that your role defines your value. But the Bible is so opposed to that. So then, point number two. Well, what, what do gender roles look like? Well, if we're going to talk about uh, biblical headship and submission, we need to start where the Apostle Paul begins in verse 21. And, the, and, and he writes this in verse 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Right? Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. This applies to both the husband and the wife. And what this means is that marriage is about mutual submission. It's about each side serving the other. It's about each side laying down their rights and privileges for the sake of the other. But here's the key point. They do this each in a different way. Okay? They do this each with their respective roles, so that the wife serves her husband by joyfully and voluntarily submitting. And the husband serves his wife through his sacrificial and loving headship. Okay? So that's the framework. That's the master paradigm in, if you're going to understand gender roles. So let's go through these one at a time. First, starting with headship. The Bible tells us that the husband is given the authority in the marriage But here's the critical question. What kind of authority? Authority as defined by whom? Because the Bible is not endorsing just any kind of authority, particularly not the abusive traditional model. But the Bible is saying authority as defined by Christ. Verse 23, that's why the Apostle Paul writes, The husband is the head of the wife, just as Christ is the head of the church. And this is critical to remember. It's not like Paul is saying, the husband has authority. Hmm, who else has authority? Oh yeah, Christ has authority. No. He's saying the husband's authority is defined by Christ. And him alone and nobody else, right? And so, the Bible is not advocating the world's definition of authority, but only Christ-like authority. And what does Christ-like authority look like? How did Christ exercise his headship over us? By laying down his life. By sacrificing his desires and his well-being for our sake, right? Not for his benefit, but for our benefit. And if you actually think about it, not only is this not the world's cultural form of authority, this subverts the world's idea, right? It actually overturns the world's idea. And, that, and that's why um, in the passage, headship is not something that you impose. It's not something you demand. Paul never says, husbands, control and dominate your wives. What does he say? He says, love your wives. He says it four separate times. Husbands, love your wives. Husbands, love your wives. Husbands, love your wives. Husbands, love your wives. Do you get it? Are you beginning to understand? You see, biblical headship means always putting her interests above your own. It means putting her happiness and her well-being above yours. And this is how Christ exercises his authority. Do you guys remember the story of the upper room? In John chapter 13, uh, the disciples and Jesus gathered to have the Last Supper. And they're there at the upper room, and they're kind of milling about. They're standing around, and it's kind of an awkward moment because they're all waiting to see who will wash the feet. 
Because in the Middle East, people walked on dusty, dry roads all day long in open-toed sandals, their feet with sweat. And so truly, the feet were the most disgusting, foulest part of the body. And it was assigned to the lowliest of servants to wash the, the feet of guests before they eat. And so the, it's kind of an awkward moment because all the disciples are kind of like all wondering, who is so low on the totem pole? Who is so junior in this organization that it's going to fall to them to do this really demeaning task? And to their absolute shock, they watch in stunned silence as Jesus wraps a towel around his waist, picks up the water basin, and he bends down and he washes his disciples' feet. You know? And that's the headship authority of a husband. He wraps a towel around his waist and he washes his wife's feet. Now some of you are saying, um, wow, that sounds poetic and nice, but I'm waiting to see what that looks like in real life. (laughs) Well, let me give you a concrete example, okay? Let's imagine a married couple, and the husband has just received a job offer, and it's fantastic. It's a huge step up for him. It's like a big promotion. One hitch. It's in a different city, and so they're going to have to move. And so the husband and wife, they sit down, they have a conversation, and the wife really doesn't want to move. You know, not only would she lose her job, which she loves and she thrives at, but um, she would have to move away from all of her family and friends. What does headship authority look like in this situation? Does it mean that the husband has the ultimate responsibility to decide? Yes. But does that mean that the husband gets what he wants and the wife will just have to cope? Absolutely not. Remember that the model is Christ. And so the husband and the wife sit down and they have a serious conversation. And when it becomes apparent to the husband that moving would really just benefit him and it would be to his wife's detriment, he decides to not take the job and to not move. You see, he lays down his life for his wife. You see, we think that headship authority means getting what you want. But don't you see, it means the exact opposite. It means the responsibility to decide not to get what you want. It means putting your wife's well-being and interests ahead of your own. Now, some of you guys are saying, wait a minute, does that mean the wife always gets what she wants and I never get what I want? Remember that marriage is mutual submission. It's each side laying down their rights and privileges and serving the other. Each side deferring to one another. But the ultimate responsibility, the primary responsibility that that happens falls on the husband. And so, yes, the the responsibility to decide ultimately falls on the husband, but that does not mean he uses that power to serve himself. Right, Because we have this image, do we not, of the husband and he's kind of just sitting around at home barking out orders like some sort of like military general. But he needs to use that power to serve his wife. Okay? So let me give you um, another concrete specific. Headship authority means that the husband is the leader in repentance. This means a lot to me. Because occasionally when Christina and I get into fights, um, we play this silly little game among ourselves because we know we need to reconcile. We know we need to apologize, right? And so I have this rule. You know, whoever started it has to apologize first. 
right? And so we have this secondary argument about who started the fight. <laughs> you know what Ephesians 5 is telling me? Ephesians 5 is telling me that I should apologize first. That I should own up genuinely and sincerely to where I am wrong and where I am at fault. Okay? Let me give you another specific. Headship authority means that the husband should take the initiative in the devotional life. Now, I know this is a major problem with married couples, right? I know that it could be a major drag to find the time and energy and, and even the desire to read the Bible and to pray together. You know, I know because there have been so many evenings where Christina and I look at each other and we're like, let's just watch TV, you know? <laughs> but as the head... Husbands, your responsibility is to lead your wife in the spiritual disciplines. Now, I'm not saying that that means you need to, you know, actually do the Bible, you know, lead the Bible study. If your wife is better at that than you, you know, if that's her gift, then let her do it. But it's your ultimate responsibility that it happens. And if reading the Bible and doing devotionals is, is, is boring, if it's tedious, if, if you don't understand what's, what you're reading, then do whatever it takes you know, find whatever resource, take whatever measure to fix it. It's your responsibility. All right, so that's the husband, okay? I gave you some specifics. Let's talk about submission. Now, I know that submission is an ugly, ugly word today, you know? And, and we, when we hear submission, the wife submitting, we, we think subjugation, right? We think coercion. We think enslavement and domination, right? It's a very, very negative uh, emotional word, right? We, we think that the wife um, is being oppressed. But once again, who is she submitting to? Christ-like authority. Christ-like authority, who can honestly object to that? And I honestly believe that the reason why Ephesians 5, you know, draws so much, you know, ups anger and frustration and objections is because people aren't reading Ephesians 5 honestly. They're not, you know. They're reading into the passage their own broken past. And when they're reading Ephesians 5, they're thinking about their abusive father. They're thinking about some male chauvinist in the church who's really burned them. And listen, I have sympathy for that. You know, I, I sympathize with that, but you need to try to read Ephesians 5 in its original context, the way the Apostle Paul intended it. And so what does submission look like? Well, let me say this. It is not about specifically divine, uh, defined tasks. Okay? Submission doesn't mean uh, the role of the wife, the task of the wife is to stay in the kitchen, cook and clean, and take care of the kids. You know, and by the way, I'm not deprecating that. That's a very noble thing. But I'm not, what I'm saying is submission doesn't mean that that is the only option for women. And that the man is the, man is the only one who gets to go out there and have a, of a, have a career. And you know why? Because where does that, where does it say that in Ephesians 5? Nowhere does it say that in Ephesians 5. Nowhere does it say, you know, the husband goes out and makes the money and the wife stays home and, and cooks and cleans. Because you know why? Proverbs 31. Which is, the, which is the ideal wife. The wife in that picture is involved in commerce. She's a savvy businesswoman. She's engaged in the community. And let me tell you, this whole idea, you know, that the public sphere is the man, the domestic sphere is the woman, is really historically a recent innovation. You know, I, I can't go into it too much. I wish I could. But it's really 
an innovation from the Industrial Revolution. It's not at all a biblical worldview. And let me just share with you my own story. You know, for Christine and I, when we, uh, for the years that we were married, there were years where I did all of the cooking and cleaning. And those are really tough years because I'm a terrible cook, and so we were pretty much in a borderline starvation during those times. You know? There were years when uh, Christina was the only one who had a job. She brought home all the bacon. And even now, Christina makes more money than me in my job. And that's fine because gender roles, biblical gender roles, has nothing to do with that. Submission has nothing to do with who does what, who makes the money, who has the career, who stays home and takes care of the kids. That's for each of you to decide what's best. Well, what is submission then? Submission is joyfully and voluntarily, it's never coerced, joyfully and voluntarily allowing your husband to exercise servant leadership, to serve you and love you. It's, the metaphor is submission is sitting down and letting your husband wash your feet. Now some of you are saying, that doesn't sound too hard. <laughs> that sounds pretty easy. Is the wife's role entirely passive in the marriage? Is she just basically laying around doing nothing and the husband's running around doing everything? No, because listen, submission is hard. True submission is hard. True submission is laying down your autonomy. It's giving up the right to make your own decisions, to have your own way, and it's placing your life in someone else's hand. Let me give you a concrete example. Imagine that you and your husband have some savings, and you're trying to decide what to do with that money. Should you buy treasury notes? Should you invest it in a mutual fund? Should you use it as a down payment to buy a house? Or maybe you should just buy gold and bury it in the backyard, you know? And let's say, okay, and this happens all the time, does it not? Let's say that both of you disagree about what to do. And listen, if the husband just wants to do something really selfish with the money, wives, you need to call your husbands out on it, you know? Gently, with love, remind him that he, remind him that the model is Christ. But let's say, okay, let's say, as a hypothetical, that the husband is genuinely acting out of what he thinks is the best for the both of you. He genuinely has your best interest in mind, but you still think he's wrong. You think it's a mistake. Submission is encouraging your husband and allowing him to go ahead and make that decision. Okay? And let me say this again. You know, husbands, headship does not mean ramrodding decisions through. It doesn't mean, you know, impulsively forcing your wife, you know, to do what you want. You need to really sit down. You need to have a discussion. You need to strive at all times for unity of mind, for harmony, for agreement. But let's say that both of you are doing this. Let's say both of you are genuinely serving one another, acting in the best interest of the other, but you still disagree. Submission is trusting your husband and encouraging him to go ahead and make the decision. And let's say you think it's a mistake. Submission means giving him the space and the freedom to make that mistake. And when he makes the mistake, let's say it is a mistake, and it, and it ends up being a mistake, submission doesn't mean saying, aha, I told you, and, and, and holding it over him. Submission means encouraging your husband and saying, it's okay, it was both of our decisions. You know? 
And so that's submission. But some of you are saying, but what if my husband is a bumbling fool? You know? The Bible says, respect him as the head, but what if, he's, what if he hasn't earned my respect? Fair question. But consider this. The Bible commands husbands to love their wives, but only if they're lovable, only if they've earned the love, absolutely not. Even if the wife is the most odious creature to the husband at that moment, he needs to love her and put her interests first because it's a grace. And so, so it is with submission. Submission is a gift of respect. Not because the husband has earned it, but because you freely choose to give it to him. You see, it goes both ways. The husband loves his wife as a grace. And the wife respects her husband as a grace. Does that make sense? And so marriage is two imperfect people submitting to one another, serving one another, loving one another through their respective roles, through their uh, through these, through these different ways. All right, that leads me to my third and final point, the conclusion. Why? Why even have gender roles in the first place? You know, why can't there just be marriage without roles? You know? And here's the reason. Because marriage is a picture of the gospel. Marriage is a redramatization of the great story of the gospel. And each person in the marriage has a role to play. The husband play acts the part of Christ through his sacrificial and loving headship. And the wife play acts the part of the church through her humble submission and trust. And as the two actors play out this drama of salvation, uh, of the gospel to each other, they proclaim the gospel. Do you see what marriage is? But let me take it one step further. Where do we find the strength to do this? Because if you've been listening to me at all, you will understand that marriage gender roles are hard to do. It is so difficult to do for both the husband and the wife. Where do we find the strength to do it? We need to soak in the gospel. We need to remind ourselves of the gospel and fix our eyes on Christ. And so husbands, look to Christ as the ultimate model of servant leadership. He laid down his life and he died on the cross to love us and serve us. Think about that. I mean, I want you to be humbled by that, that that is what you are called to do, to lay down your life as Christ laid down his. And then wives, look to Christ as the ultimate example of humble submission. Christ submitted himself to the will of the Father. Remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, as Jesus contemplated the awful agonies of the cross, what did he pray? He said, not my will, but yours be done. Not my will, not the way I want things, not my desires, but I submit. Now some of you are saying, well, Christ could do that because God is perfect. My husband is far from perfect. But listen to me, that's why the Apostle Paul says, submit to your husband's as to the Lord. In your submission, you're really submitting to Christ. Christ is the true head. Christ is your true husband. You know, he is the, he is the true bridegroom. And so, 
What that tells us is that Jesus is the ultimate model of both masculine and feminine power. Isn't that amazing? Jesus is the ultimate model of masculine and feminine power. And so as each person play acts the role of Christ, and as we serve each other through these roles, each of us catches a glimpse of the gospel and we see a picture of Christ. You know, So that as your wife humbly submits, you see Christ. And as your husband uh, does his servant leadership, you see Christ. And you're encouraged. And you more deeply understand what it means that Jesus died for you. And so that's what it's all about. You know, I say this every week, do I not? That the whole point of this marriage series is not for me to impart to you uh, tips about marriage, you know? It's not for me to enhance your marital well-being. Hopefully that's a byproduct. What is the whole point of this series? The point of this series is for you to more deeply understand the gospel. And marriage is a picture of that. So therefore, even for those of you who are single, even if you never marry, this is incredibly important for you because you cannot understand the gospel until you more deeply understand marriage. It's a picture of the gospel. Let's pray.